All right, so I'm pretty excited today because we're starting a brand new series, and uh, this series is called, right there, I Want to Live, which uh, I don't know if that sounds like uh, an odd title, but uh, a couple months ago when I was watching, um, uh, what was I watching? Uh, what's the name of that movie? Um, Wally. Wally, thank you. I was watching Wally with my kids, and uh, there's a scene towards the end of Wally, where this big overweight captain of this glorious ship uh, who's done nothing with his life, he just sits around, lays on his back all day, finally gets to the point and realizes, you know, I'm not doing anything with my life. And he's having this conflict with this computer. And, um, you know, the computer says, basically, if you stay here, you will survive. And in the moment of his humanity being finally awakened, he just screams out, I don't want to survive, I want to live. I've done nothing with my life, I've just done the, the basics to survive. And as I was watching that with my kids a couple months ago, uh, I was like, wow, how true is that of many who just go through life trying to survive, jumping from circumstance to situation, just trying to get through the day. Uh, rather than people who are actually living life the way that God had intended uh, us uh, to live. Um, so we're going to start um, a series called I Want to Live. And really what we're going to do is just faithfully walk through uh, something known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Uh, as best as I can tell, we'll be here for about 14 weeks and uh, today is, is day one where we're going to be looking at uh, attitudes. Um, but as we start this series, a basic question is why? Why the Sermon on the Mount? Of all the texts in the Bible, of all 66 books and all sections within the Bible, why start here? Why go to the Sermon uh, on the Mount? And more than that, why even bother with that? One challenge of a question for you is, why would you even bother to want to live out what Jesus is about to teach us uh, over these next few months in the Sermon on the Mount? I would have to say that of people who are not even familiar with the Bible, this is probably one of the, the things that people are actually most familiar with. Some of Jesus' teaching has actually infiltrated secular culture. There will be a lot of familiarity with what Jesus is saying, and people are like, oh, I've heard that before, but I didn't know this is actually where it came from. So I'll give you three reasons why we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one is just this. When I consider what Jesus Christ did, that he came and lived perfectly without sin, went to a cross, died on our behalf, paying penalty for sin, rose from the dead, thus conquering sin and death and, and Satan, giving life. When I consider all that Jesus has done, died and was resurrected, he didn't do that just for forgiveness of sins and for our eternity. He did that so that through his death and resurrection, we might actually live our life very differently. So one of the reasons we will take time to go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount is just straightforward because of the gospel. Jesus gave his life so that we would live very, very differently. 
Romans 6, I love how Romans 6 says this. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Jesus died, was resurrected so that we may live a new life. Not a life where we're just trying to survive and get through the day, but where we're living the life that Jesus intended and gave himself for us to live. So please know, there is a dramatic difference of people who are surviving life and people who are living life. There's a dramatic difference between those who are going through the motions of life and those who actually see their life as actually one who is, is on mission. And not just their mission, but God's mission. There are too many people who just live life way out of focus. And all that they can see is just what's in front of them. But Jesus died and was resurrected, the gospel, so that our focus would not just be on what's in front of us, but our focus would be on eternity and our lives would reflect eternal ones. Surviving life or living life. If you sit here today, what are you doing? I mean, be honest with yourself. You don't have to answer out loud, obviously. But as you sit here today, is it literally just circumstance to circumstance, situation to situation, just trying to get through? You're in survival mode and have actually been in survival mode for a long time. You're the type of person who thinks, man, if I can just get through this season, then it will be better. I'll be different. Things will be different. If you actually do that, you get to the end of that. Do you know what's always waiting for you? The next thing. And there are people who go year after year after year, and it's like, gosh, I've been saying the same thing for years, but yet I'm not any different. So as you sit here this morning, surviving or living, I just want you to know that Jesus died and rose again so that we would live very, very differently. Second reason, so the first reason is gospel. The second reason is grace. Of all of the texts that we could look at, especially in the New Testament, uh, that just point to our need for grace, God's unmerited favor, especially the Beatitudes that we're going to look at this morning, this section of Scripture just reveals our need for grace. Like, and I hope one of the things you'll even pick up today and pick up in the weeks to come is you don't need to try harder. You don't need to just, you know, uh, I need to have more faith and I'm just going to try so much harder. What you need is more grace. And one of the things that this text, especially today, will point out is we can't do anything apart from Jesus. Like we just can't live life apart from him. We are people who are so desperately sinful and who are desperately in need of Jesus. So this entire text, the Sermon on the Mount, it will reveal not only our need for grace, but it will reveal what I love about this is what a grace-filled life looks like. You ever wondered what a really grace-filled life looks like? Like what it looks like to be, to live as one whose life has been overwhelmed by the grace of God. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. This is what points not only our need for grace, but what it looks like to live as one who's been graced by God. Third one is this. First one is gospel. 
Second one is grace. And just to be redundant and consistent, uh, the third one again is gospel. Now, I know I already said gospel, but you see signage all over the place when you walk into this place. And one of the words that you see often on our website, on our signs, on the big sign out front is a key word. It says Genesis, and the very first word underneath that is the word begin. Our heart in this church is that there would be a multitude of people who feel compelled, who feel encouraged, who feel convicted, inspired to begin a relationship with God. And so as we would go through this series together, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I put gospel again. I personally believe that what the world needs most, more than anything, more than economic fixes, more than any issue you name, what the world needs most is Jesus. And I wonder what, maybe put it this way, what do you think the world around you would begin to look like if you followed Christ in everything that he instructs us to do in these upcoming texts? I mean, what do you think the world would look like if Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus, actually lived like Jesus and actually began looking like Jesus and how we acted and interacted with people around us and how we loved and how we forgave and how we served? So the question will be, gospel, by the way we are living out, I see very much that people will be intrigued and say, what is so different about you? Why do you live so differently than I do? Where does your joy, your hope, your peace, your conviction, where does your on mission? You live intentional, you live very disciplined, not as a legalist, but as one who actually understands and gets grace. More Christians acting like Christ, less Christians Christless. I don't know if I'm hitting something, but if I am, I apologize. So, gospel, grace, and then again, gospel. That people would see your life. That people would see my life. And they would say, I don't completely get it, but I want it. And there would be many, especially as we're starting out this brand new thing called a church. That people would look at this, meaning you, me, our lives, and say, I want to be part of what you are part of. And we would be able to point them and be like, man, it is so much about grace. It is so much about Jesus. Question. Is the the message uh, of Jesus, what we're going to look at, this Sermon on the Mount, is it actually relevant to today? I know one of the arguments I hear a lot, at least, is the Bible is so old school. It's so... It just doesn't make sense, and it certainly doesn't connect with me and where I'm at in my life. Character, influence, legalism, murder, hate, sex, lust, adultery, marriage, divorce, commitment, retaliation, forgiveness, generosity, prayer, fasting, money, worry, anxiety, fear, judgment of others, eternal life, faithful slash fruitful living, building your life on something that will not fail nor fall. That's what we're going to do over these next three months. So I ask you, is that at all relevant to what we live in 
day in and day out. I can't think of a more relevant passage in Scripture for us to be going through right now. And one of the the beautiful things about this message is the faces in the crowd. When I consider... um, uh, Hang on, let me get my Bible. When I consider the people who are listening to Jesus preach this message... Uh, I consider the many different faces, and behind every face is a story. And every person had a story back then, just like every face here has a story. Meaning, you have a story. And your story is so different than probably the, the man or the woman sitting next to you. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is as a way of... As preview is what we're headed to in in Matthew 5. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Just let this sink in for a second. Preaching the good news, meaning gospel, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus was saying and doing things that was drawing a huge crowd. And in every crowd is a face, and in every face is a story. I guarantee there were some, the disciples specifically who I'm thinking about, they were there because they wanted to follow, because Jesus had specifically invited them, come, follow me, and they left their life to follow Jesus. I guarantee there was probably others in the crowd who were just curious, sincerely curious, who is this guy? Like he's doing phenomenal things. Dare I call miraculous things? Then there were probably people in the crowd who were um, insincere but still curious. They were just waiting for him to trip up, wanting to maybe prove him wrong. There was probably skeptics. There was probably doubters. There was probably haters. But then there was probably people who were slightly encouraged, encouraged intrigued. There were so many different people and so many different faces and so many different stories. And as we sit here today, as we start this new journey together, I wonder, what does your face tell about your story? Are you here because you're waiting for Jesus to do his next trick? Because you have to imagine there was plenty of people who were just waiting for the freak show to go on. I mean, paralyzed people, people with seizures, people who were were sick, severe pain, deaf, blind, mute. You have to believe that there were some people in the crowd who just wanted to see what this circus sideshow would do next. But then there might have been some people who were like, but that's me. I could use his touch. I've got this, whatever the issue might be. So as you sit here today, where are you at? What is your face? What is your story? 
Are you following Jesus just in hopes of catching the next glimpse of a, a cool miracle in someone else's life? Or are you in a place where you're in desperate need of the touch of God on your life? Are you here because you're kind of that skeptic who's curious, but you're just looking for someone to confirm what you don't believe? So what's your story? What is your face communicate? There would have been thousands of people there when Jesus taught. And I know if we were just to read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I could probably get through it in about 5, 10 minutes. Just so you know, this was spread out over uh, probably at least four or five days. Jesus just didn't read a text and be like, all right, I hope it all goes well for you. Peace out. Like, this was not a 10-minute long message. This is Matthew recounting that one week where Jesus sat on the mountain. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples, see, if you want to know why I sit down, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, all right? (laughs) He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. I'll say it twice. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, where are you today? And maybe I could ask, three months from now, where do you want to be? Where would you love to see your life, your walk with God, your relationship with Jesus be at? And maybe it needs to say, I need to begin one first. And I will have to say, this won't make much sense if you've not began a relationship with Jesus. It does not make sense for me to read Jesus' words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What do I care if I see God? But to those where the gospel has just penetrated heart, soul, that is one of the things you want more than anything, is an unobstructed view of Jesus. So maybe you just need to begin Take the leap, take the step, begin that journey, begin that relationship. Let me uh, pray for us. I'm not sure how much we're going to get through today, but I just want to give you guys actually a few minutes to pray. This isn't going to be one of those pastoral 10 minute or 10 second silent and then I'll say something. I'm going to give you a few minutes actually. I want you to kind of settle in and, and sit with this question of where you at today as it relates to your relationship with God. And might you just ask Jesus to speak to you, to touch you, to heal you, to meet you, right in the midst of your story. And no one knows your story better than Jesus and better than you. So wherever you are and wherever you desire to be two, three months from now, And I really hope that you would desire, in all sincerity, honesty, that you would be different, that your life would be different, your character, your personhood, your heart, your soul, you would just be different. You will have grown. Why? Because Jesus has something to say to you. So just spend a few moments, just where you are, just quietly just praying, you and God. Let him hear your heart. So Father God, I just give you these next moments and just ask as you would hear each of these prayers, God, that you would be gracious as you always are to hear our prayers. 
Sometimes we don't even know what to say and we don't even know what to pray. So God, even in our fumbled attempts, our fumbled words, might you hear, understand, discern what our hearts desire and long for most. So God, please hear the prayers of your people. Father God, you've heard just prayers being offered up. God, I confess that uh, it's hard sitting with you sometimes in silence for fear of what you might say or fear of what you won't say. God, I pray that uh, we would sit well. God, I pray that uh, you know every single person here. You know their story. You know where they're at. God, I believe that, uh, Jesus, you can speak to every single person here, no matter where they're at, no matter what they've done, no matter what they will do. So, God, I pray that uh, over these today and in the weeks, months to come, as we would sit with you, Jesus, in this text, in this story, in this <clears throat> sermon. <clears throat> We would hear your voice. And God, please give us the courage to respond. God, I pray that um, if there's some folks here who have yet to confess you as Savior, Jesus, they would meet you as Savior. God, if there's a few, if, if not many, who are just surviving, living from situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance, then God, I pray you'd save us from that. That we would live in light of the gospel. We would live as ones who have been graced. And God, that the world might know that you are good, you are faithful and gracious, and you change lives. Let it begin with ours. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
So there's eight uh, B attitudes. Uh, that's what we're, maybe we'll get through half. I'm not sure, maybe we'll get through all, but um, we're going to look at uh, the B attitudes. Um, it's interesting, of all the things that Jesus teaches on, he starts with the, the attitude. And as I've asked the question, at least of myself, uh, why does he first go after attitudes? Why doesn't he start, I don't know, somewhere else? Why doesn't he start with some good old-fashioned theology or some doctrine or some, you know, why does he go after attitudes? Why does he address uh, the attitude? And as I was just wrestling with that question, you may have heard this before, but attitude is everything, right? I actually believe that. Attitude is everything. And I wanted to fill out that sentence of attitude determines actions. Actions reveal the heart, and the heart displays the man. If attitude is everything, which I believe attitude is so much, attitude determines actions. Actions reveal the heart, and the heart displays the man. Our attitude drives what we do and how we do it, and what you do reveals who you are, reveals the heart, the core. The great Proverbs is Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen: As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. As you would look into... Um, a river, a stream, be able to see your reflection. That is true of what dwells, resides, lives within your heart is a reflection of who you are. So I believe that Jesus goes pretty hard after attitude because he understands, obviously better than anyone, that your attitude will drive your actions, and your actions ultimately are a reflection of what's going on in your heart. If you're unfamiliar with uh, my preaching style, I overwhelm you with questions. That's my goal, is how many questions can I sneak in? So here's another one. How is your attitude today? Not what you want your attitude to be tomorrow, but just today. How is your attitude? And I'm not just talking about like a bad attitude in this or that. I'm not talking about situational attitudes. I'm talking about like the attitude, your core attitude, kind of the heart attitude. What would it be? I mean, attitudes are, could be a variety of things. could be in just an anger, bitter, discontent, worried, anxiety, guilt-ridden over, I mean, what is your attitude? I just, if you catch it, I want you to catch that your attitude will drive what you do, how you do it, and those things are all reflections of your heart. This is the attitudes that Jesus calls us towards. I'm going to read these pretty slow, uh, and I'm personally overwhelmed with this section of scripture. It floors me because as I mentioned before, it just shows me how 
much I fall short, but it reveals how much grace I actually need in my life to connect to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's the only place in Scripture where it says we'll see God. Just side note. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Actually rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I imagine the original audience listening to this was like, is he serious? That's what a blessed life looks like? This is literally flipping their world as they knew it upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Another question for you. What is a blessed life? How would you define what a blessed life looks like? Most of us, if we're honest, a blessed life is, I'm skinny, I got good hair, I got good outfits, I got a good job, I make money, pretty cool place to live, nice car, some good friends. Like, if we're honest, most of what we would say, we look at people who look like that, I just described like, man, that guy's blessed. Or that, that woman, gosh, she's so blessed. She's so pretty. They're so smart. They got such a cool job. Wow, did you see that car? Did you hear about that vacation they took? They're so blessed. The blessed life is all in what we can see. It's kind of the show. And to tell you the truth, first century audience actually wasn't much different. Their idea, what they were instructed and what they were taught, is those who were materialist, uh, who possessed a lot. They, they had material goods. They had money. They had cash. That was outward signs of blessing. People who were mourning, people who were being persecuted, people who were suffering, they are cursed, actually, not blessed. So as you would consider a blessed life, what is a blessed life to you? And as you think about your definition of a blessed life, is it right? Because some of us might need to revamp what we actually think a blessed person, a blessed individual, a blessed life. 
First century, they lost sight of what blessing actually meant, what blessing actually looked like. If the families got cash, they're blessed of God. God must really like them because clearly he provides for them. But woe is me, I'm not blessed of God because I haven't had food in two days. That would be the mindset. And let's just be honest, most of us would say something similar, just a modern-day vernacular. Clearly, God is not blessing me because I can get nothing right, do nothing right. Nothing ever works out for me. Clearly, God's blessing is over there. And every time I try to go over there, it seems to just move over there. Like it just seems God's blessing is everywhere where I am not. And every time I try to show up, it disappears. I don't know about you, but I really want a blessed life. Like a biblically blessed life. And just as we're starting out, I, just, I so want that for you. I want each of you to be able to say, my life is blessed of God. Too many of us just waste so much time walking around thinking my life is cursed of God. And I just want you to experience God's blessing on your life. Like, is there anything in you that says, I so want that? I want my life to be marked by being blessed of God. I want that for you. And I hope that you want that as well where you would say, I do want God's blessing on my life. Not my version of God's blessing, but the real thing. Not some fake. And as we go through just a few of these, would you be willing to readjust not only your thinking, but actually how you live so that you might step into that blessed life? Just to clarify uh, what blessing actually means, because he mentions it nine times in this text. Some versions, depending on which uh, translation of Scripture you have, some might actually say happy, which back then it might have made a little bit more sense in our current dictionary understanding of happy. It's this emotional state of euphoria. I'm so happy. That's not necessarily what Jesus is talking about. To be congratulated Or to be fortunate is another way to understand blessed. But I think one of uh, probably the best definitions or way to understand what Jesus is talking about uh, is to be approved. So the man or the woman who is blessed of God is approved of God. So that attitude is blessed or approved of God, pleases God. Blessed or approved are you, verse 3, are poor in spirit, for, those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Obvious question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I give you two things what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're a grumpy, cranky, ornery Christian it's just like, oh, Scripture told me I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to mourn, so I'm being biblical. 
No, you just got a bad attitude and you don't understand what Jesus is talking about. You're just cranky. Need more caffeine. Just kidding. You need more Jesus, not caffeine. So. so it doesn't mean that you're just this ornery, angry Christian who's trying to prove Jesus right of like, I'm going to mourn in everything I do and I'm going to make my life not only miserable, but everyone else is around me miserable. It also doesn't speak to poverty, physical poverty, where there are people who literally the mindset is, well, Jesus is clearly telling me I'll be blessed if I am poor in spirit, so I will just give everything away possible and I'll just live on the streets and hope for the best. That's not the poverty or the poorness that Jesus is speaking to. The poor in spirit are those who realize that there's nothing they can bring to God. Meaning you lack spiritual resource. Another way, you're spiritually bankrupt. I had a friend of mine who recently went through bankruptcy. And if you've ever gone through that, uh, you would testify. Uh, It's not only incredibly humbling and humiliating, it's incredibly just, you literally, it's not just white towel, but you just throw your hands, I got nothing. I can do nothing. I am overwhelmed. I am dead in the water unless someone bails me out. That's what it means to be poor in spirit to be a person who is spiritually bankrupt before God, meaning you confess, I am completely unworthy. Here's a really hard question for you. Have you gotten to the end of you yet? Have you gotten to the end of yourself yet? As I was reading and uh, just doing some study this week, I wrote that question down. And I said, Michael, have you gotten to the end of yourself yet? Because it's a really good place to get to. But then the obvious question is, well, what does it actually mean? How would you know if you have gotten to the end of yourself yet? And it's always good to answer questions with more questions. It's Jesus style. So ask yourself the ragamuffin question. And the ragamuffin question is this. Is there anything that you could do to merit God's pleasure, favor, or approval? Is there something within you that will make God prefer you or accept you? Meaning, is there anything in you or about you that you think somehow still is just pleasing to God? That God is somehow impressed? Wow, look at that servant over there. If only everyone else could be like them, this world would be such a better place. Like, is there anything in you that still believes, holds on to, that I have something where I bring to the table to God? If you answer yes, you're not at the end of you yet. You are not at the end of you yet if you still think that you bring something to the equation. The end of you is the place where you get, where you throw your arms up in the air and say, I got nothing. I am ruined. I am undone. I am sinful. I sin. I am unworthy. And this is not just the man or woman who just beats themselves up. 
This is the man or woman who has such a high view of who God is. In view of who he is, I got nothing. I am nothing. I mean, the prophets would say that. Isaiah, I'm, I'm undone. I've seen God. I've got nothing. I'm ruined, actually. Romans chapter 3 says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. Let me read that again. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Okay, so question. Do you believe Romans 3, verse 10 through 12, is talking about you or someone else? Because there has to get, you have to get to a point where you say, that's totally me. I'm that guy. I'm that woman that Paul is talking about in Romans 3. Not one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. Like the only reason you have thought, inclination, a desire to seek God is because God is at work in your life. It's not because you're some awesome person. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Is that for you or is that for the guy next to you? Because that's where you nudge and be like, dude, wake up, pay attention. The Bible's talking about you again. Getting to the end of you is a good place to get to because when you get to the end of you, you can finally declare with confidence and conviction, I've got nothing, I need Jesus. That is a person who is blessed of God because they got to the end of themselves and says, I've got nothing before God. And when you become spiritually, realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, then you can begin to enter into the richness that God has for you and who he is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember the promise that Jesus gives. Heaven. Blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom. No one's going to show up to heaven one day and be like, well, I'm here because look at all, look at my trail of works behind me. Look at this caravan of people I influenced and blessed and all the good things I did. Jesus will graciously say, heaven's not for you, man. You missed Romans 3. You didn't understand spiritual bankruptcy. Remember the promise for those who are spiritually bankrupt. This is where you find encouragement. Again, Jesus was not trying to beat people. He was trying to point them towards a blessed life. And so if you at all, and I hope you do, feel overwhelmed with how unworthy you are, because you are, and so am I. When you get to that place, then, only then, will you be awakened to the reality of, I'm me, and yet I, I get that? That's amazing. All of God I can enter into and receive, but... That's grace. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, specifically these Beatitudes, point to just grace. Let me do uh, one more, which means apparently we'll have six for next week. 
Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I'm guessing we typically regard people who are mourning as very unfortunate people, people actually to be pitied, people who, you know, people who are certainly not blessed of God. I mean, when's the last time you looked at someone mourning and be like, man, that dude's blessed? When's the last time you saw someone who was just overwhelmed with grief and be like, you are blessed. I can't wait to hang out with you. Like, usually we run from people who mourn because we don't want them, whatever they have, to rub off on us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I guess the question becomes, what is Jesus actually talking about mourning over? And to the person who got the first one, poor in spirit, spiritual bankruptcy, do you think once you've realized just how sinful you are, you would begin to what? Have a sense of mourning, have a sense of grief over how offensive my sin is to God. Poor in spirit are those who realize that they are utterly sinful and it's our sin that we begin to mourn over. What's the last thing you mourned over? And mourning, just so you understand, it's a very intense, it's not like you got teared up because an emotional scene where she said yes and he finally had the courage to ask her in a movie. It's the type of mourning that is a deep grief. So what was the last thing you grieved over in your life? It's not to say some of you may have gone through intense extreme loss. But what Jesus is getting at When's the last time you cried over sin? Like you mourned, you grieved the reality that you are a sinner who still sins. And you just knew how offensive your sin was to a holy, awesome, just God. And you were not mourning like the consequences, like, oh my gosh, now I'm in it. You were actually mourning that it was offensive to God. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Best way to mourn sin is to ask God for a, a healthy, holy hatred of sin. I don't know if you've ever asked God of that, but that's a good prayer request. God, help me to hate sin. Like I just, I want to have such a distaste in my mouth towards sin. Not just sin in general, but the sins that seem to trap me the sinful attitudes, the sinful behaviors and patterns. Just ask God, God, would you help me just, I want to hate it, like a lot. And ask God for that heart that would begin to mourn. And the beauty of those who mourn is a promise that Jesus gives. You who mourn, blessed are you. Approved of God are you. You will be comforted. We do not serve or worship a God who's like, yeah, look at that guy down on the ground feeling all bad about his sin. I hope he figures it out one day. Like, it's not like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are having like, sweet, another one. Laughing at you in your condition. Jesus gives the promise 
to those who mourn over sin, you will find comfort. And you know what you find comfort in? Forgiveness. There is nothing that you can do, say, go, be, where mourning over that sin would not be covered by the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that you could do where forgiveness would not be met when you are grieving over your sin. So the promise to those who mourn is that they will find comfort and comfort in knowing the truth that the sin has been atoned for and is completely forgiven. Many people miss the comfort of God because they skipped over the forgiveness. I don't, what do I need to be forgiven of? My stuff's not that bad. What have I done? Like, look at the guy next to me. Look at the woman next to me. They seriously need forgiveness because they have serious issues. Missing the comfort of God or forgiveness because it's very difficult to be forgiven of sins you're not sorry for. I'll say that again. It is hard to be forgiven of sins you're ultimately not sorry for. But the greater tragedy is not necessarily the sin. It's a denial of sin. Because to those who deny sin, forgiveness is impossible for you. If you don't actually believe that you sin, offend God, rebel against God, you'll never come to God and say, Grace, I'm bankrupt, hands up. I've gotten to the end of myself. The greater tragedy is to the individual who refuses or denies just how sinful we we are. Okay, so this is the Apostle Paul. He says this. When you think of Apostle Paul, you think, man, this guy's got his stuff together. What a wretched man I am. Let me just stop there. When's the last time you started your day and be like, what a wretched man I am? What a wretched woman I am. And then followed up with a question. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And you just sat in that for a moment. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to, because I can't do anything. Who is going to rescue me from me? And then there's pause. And then Paul smiles. Why? Because he remembers, he thinks, he recalls what? Grace. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Just the first half I wanted you to see. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a really amazing feeling when you just, you got to the end of yourself, poor in spirit, you've mourned over your sin, and you get to this point, you say, wow, thanks be to God through Jesus that I still have forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and ultimately salvation. I will stop with that beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn.
Next week, we're going to kick into uh, the next one where it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, which is a really, it's a paradox because it's like the meek, they never get anything. They get run over. But Jesus, in his economy, his kingdom, says, no, blessed are the meek. Let me just pray. And I sense this was uh, kind of heavy. Uh, And that's okay. Sometimes it's good just to sit in the heaviness and the weight and the reality of who we are. But I don't want you to miss the reality of who God is. I do pray that you would come to the end of yourself. Get to the end of yourself because it's a great place to get to. Because then you get to see God and his riches. We're going to celebrate uh, communion uh, as we do each week. And we do that each week to remember and remind ourselves of gospel, to remind ourselves that we are sinful but yet forgiven because of what Jesus did, not because of something anyone of us would ever do. But we remember that it is because of Jesus and only because of Jesus that we are blessed, that we have a relationship with God. I started out maybe 45 minutes ago encouraging you, where are you at in your story? Maybe some of you need to begin. If you're at that place, your beginning point is a simple confession. God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing to offer you. I come to the table empty-handed, confessing that I've sinned, rebelled against you. It's at that moment where you meet the hand of Jesus. And he says, forgiveness and grace. If you've never confessed Jesus as Savior, as God's Son, as the one who, and the only one who makes us right with God, do that today. And if you've done that before, then know that you are blessed in your spiritual bankruptcy, and you are blessed when you mourn, because there's grace and forgiveness as clearly demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. So Father God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, Jesus, that uh, you are so gracious to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, I thank you for uh, this morning looking at some hard things, but some good things. Looking at the, the attitudes that you invite, you call us towards. God, I pray that in the midst of spiritual bankruptcy, we would be met with your kingdom, with heaven, with the richness that comes from knowing you, Jesus. God, I do pray that our community here, each one of us would have an incredible sense of mourning that our sin is grievous to you. Just absolute rebellion. And God, in that mourning, in that grieving, we would not only hate sin, but God, we could enter into your comfort that comes through forgiveness of sin and your grace. So Jesus says we would finish time together this morning.
we want to remember what you have done for us because you've done everything. So we remember your body that was just battered and bruised and bloodied, nailed upon a cross to pay the penalty for sin. And we confess and believe that Jesus Christ, you were raised from the dead on that third day, resurrected to life. That those who would believe in you, confess you, Jesus as God, we too would have life and life eternal.